1: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today hello everybody and welcome back to new books in history i'm marshall poe your host each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book This week we have Tony Michaels on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, A Fire in Their Hearts, Yiddish Socialists in New York. Truth be told, the book is not exactly new. It came out in 2005, but the paperback edition has just been released. So when I got the catalog from Harvard University Press and saw that this was the case, I decided to treat myself to a book and a topic that I have long been interested in. I was a fan of the so-called New York intellectuals, and I always wondered where they came from. Many of them were of Jewish descent, and uh, as the name implies, uh, most all of them were from New York. I suspected that they had their roots in um, Jewish socialism in New York in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, and uh, in that I was not wrong. Tony has filled in a lot of blanks for me uh, in describing the uh, origins of Yiddish socialism in New York and the importance that it had for American intellectual history uh, and also of course uh, labor history in the United States and the history of socialism. I really enjoyed talking to Tony today and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi Tony. Hi Marshall. How are you today?
2: I'm doing very well. Thank you.
1: You're up in Wisconsin. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yes.
1: And in how, Madison. how are things in Wisconsin?
2: Uh, we've gotten above freezing, so I uh, <laughs> think th- things are looking bright. Yeah,
1: that's that's about that's usually that's what we say here in Iowa too. Above freezing right. is a good day, you know. That's great. I should tell our uh, listeners that we have Tony Michaels on the show. You know, Tony, I didn't ask you how you pronounce your last name.
2: It's I, Michaels. That's Michaels.
1: Right. That's great. I got it right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh Tony Michaels on the show, and we're going to be talking about his terrific new book, "A Fire in Their Hearts: Yiddish Socialists in New York." I told um, Tony in the pre-interview that uh, although this Show is called New Books in History. Um, I decided to treat myself to this book, which actually came out in 2005. Is that right, Tony? That's right. That's right. Because it's a, a pet—it's a pet interest of mine. It's something I've—I've I've followed uh, pretty closely for for quite a number of years. And when I, I saw it in the catalog, I said, "You know, I got to talk to this guy. Um, I don't care if it's a new book or not." So uh, I'm sure that our um, listeners will enjoy uh, this interview as much as uh, I uh, will. So let me um, begin by asking you, Tony, to say a few words about yourself, that is, where you were from, where you went to school, and how you became interested in history.
2: Okay. I, I, I just want to interject that I actually it just came out in paperback last month. Oh, so right in now. a sense, it's, it's new in that sense. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, anyway, yes, it came out in 2005. So I... Um, I came. Uh, I come from California, the Bay Area, which is hardly a uh, hotbed of um, Yiddish socialism. <laughs> 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 uh, I grew up in Silicon Valley, and then went to college at UC Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. and then grad graduate school at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't. Re- I, I I can't exactly recall how I got into the subject. I feel like I stumbled into it through a series of. Uh, um, uh, decisions that, well, I don't even know if decision is the right word. I think I, f- I felt like I just kind of moved, gravitated. I gravitated towards it. And, uh, I was interested in history, uh, disparate things, history, the history of socialism, the history of Jews, and, um, those disparate interests converged in this subject at some point in graduate school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, um, how, how did you, who was your advisor as an undergraduate? Did, did someone guide you in this direction, or was it just No, an accident? not at all.
2: No, not at all. And under the, the well, there was no Jewish studies program at the time at UC Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. I didn't do much coursework in that. I didn't have much training in it. Um, I didn't have so I didn't have any advisor uh, guiding me in this direction. I had certainly had professors that were um, took an interest in me and and had an influence on me. But but as far as the subject goes, that was something I, I gra- again gravitated to kind of on my own. When I got to graduate school, that was a, that was different, of course.
1: Mm-hmm. How did you come to uh how- Yiddish is not the first language that people generally pick up at least here in Iowa, and I bet the same is true in wisconsin how How did you come to
0: learn Yiddish? That's
2: true well, you know the first um I would have taken Yiddish I think if we were offered at Santa Cruz just mm-hmm. because I think I had an emotional predisposition to it mm-hmm. uh, but but um I started learning it in graduate school. It was the first week of the semester of my first year and uh my advisor at the time said, "You know, um, do you know Yiddish?" I said, "No," and he said, "Well, it's time you start learning." So mm-hmm. that's that's how I got into it. It was being offered at Stanford, and mm-hmm. my advisor said I should take it. And I found I actually took to it very quickly and fell in love with it very quickly. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I I don't. Uh I read German. I don't read Yiddish because I don't know Hebrew characters. Mm, but mm, I, I was very interested in the book to see the transliterated words and try to find their German equivalent if they had one. So yeah. it's something I'm very interested in. And obviously we have all these Yiddish expressions in in, in English. Um, yeah. Uh, so so it's a, it must have been a fascinating thing. I mean it's very it's very yeah. good that you could learn it at Stanford. That that's terrific. I don't think we mm. have anyone here that does it. But uh, but it's it's something that um you know it's something that uh, I've always had a kind of I've, I've had a kind of interest in it. I don't I don't really know why. But mm-hmm. so then, did you go to graduate school intending to study uh, labor history or socialist
0: history? Or well,
2: whatever? I can't say I thought about graduate school school very clearly, mm-hmm. uh, for better or for worse. Um, but I knew I was interested in socialist and labor history, mm-hmm. and I knew I was also interested in Jewish history. In mm-hmm. fact, I, I, there was a Jewish history program in the history department, and mm-hmm. that's what I applied to. I see. Um, uh, so I knew I wanted to study some aspect of socialism, working class history, and Jews. And mm-hmm. I just didn't know exactly how I was going to do it or what topic I was going to pursue. Mm-hmm. I, I, those things I didn't know. Mm-hmm.
1: I see, I see. Well, it's good to go into things with an open mind. Actually, your story is it's almost as accidental as mine. I I, oh, yeah. I went to college to play basketball, and they assigned me a guy oh. who was a Russian historian as my advisor. Oh. And that was pretty much it. You know, I was from Kansas. I had no, I don't have any Russian background or anything. I just, you know, that was, I, it was a complete accident on my part. But so let's uh, launch mm-hmm. into a discussion of the, um, the book itself. Um, and I want to, I want to begin with a question, which I, I don't know the answer to, uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but, but, and, it, and it, it slightly precedes the period which you discuss in um, uh, A Fire in Their Hearts. And that is, tell us a little bit about the initial Jewish immigration to New York in the 19th century. Who were the first wow. Jews to come there?
2: Uh, well, their Jews had been coming to New York since the 17th century, mm-hmm. before it was New York, um, you know, when it was New Amsterdam. And but but after uh, the Civil War, and incre- uh, in, increasingly large numbers of Jews started coming from Eastern Europe, mainly mm-hmm. the Russian Empire, but mm-hmm. also Austria-Hungary and Romania. And um, their numbers grew very quickly, so that by the 1880s the Lower East Side was already being referred to as um, the, the Jewish ghetto or the mm-hmm. Great Jewish Ghetto or Jewtown, in the mm-hmm. words of Jacob Rees. Mm-hmm. And by World, by world War One, actually a little bit earlier, there were more than a half million Jews
0: mm-hmm. living in the
2: Lower East Side alone.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
2: it became, within a short time frame, from the Civil War to World War I, uh the city as a whole came, became home to... Oh, uh, well over a million Jews. Actually, uh, I wish I had the numbers at my fingertips. fingertips I think it was about 1.5 million Jews. Um, so, the, the, and then that became the largest, the single largest Jewish urban community in the world. There was yeah. nothing; no other place came close.
1: Yeah. So these, uh, these Jews from Eastern Europe were predominantly Yiddish speakers then.
2: Yes, they were predominantly mm-hmm. Yiddish speakers. That's I right. See.
1: Uh-huh. I see. Uh I see. So the uh, the area of the Lower East Side, which we now um, associate with uh, that Jewish immigration, had, had, a, yes. had a prior immigration. I knew a little bit about it, but uh, you flesh it out much better in your book, and that is uh, th- these, were, these were Germans who had come mm-hmm. here. Um, maybe you mm-hmm. can talk a little bit about them.
2: Well, the, yes, the, the, there was a large German immigrant community, most of whom uh, were not Jews but uh, Protestants or Catholics, mm-hmm although there was a Jewish component in that immigration as mm-hmm. well. And uh, the bulk of them had settled on the Lower East Side, it, and, and it was known for that reason as Klein Deutschland or, mm-hmm. or Little Germany. Mm-hmm. And they really um, had a, put a stamp, a German stamp, in the area known as the Lower East Side at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing they brought to the United States, it's important for my book, is a strong socialist and, and labor tradition and mm-hmm. institutions, and so so that Germans were really the backbone of american socialism mm-hmm. during the 18 during the, uh, the second half of the 19th century let's mm-hmm. say
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and Jews coming to the lower East side encountered um a, a, an area that was that was predominantly german mm-hmm. and that was obvious in lots of ways uh, german signage on, on businesses saloons um beer halls uh, theater uh, lecture halls in all sorts of ways you'd, you'd see German, and German coworkers and on and on. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. No, this is the part of the book that actually I found uh, most fascinating, and I think is the most uh, the most revisionist. Can one say that? I don't know, because we, uh, at least I, had this notion that um, the Jews who came from the Eastern um, Russian Empire brought mm-hmm. socialism with them to the Lower East mm-hmm. Side, but you argue mm-hmm. something very different. Um, maybe mm-hmm. you could talk about that.
2: Yes, well, uh, Jews are. Eventually there would be many Jews who came to New York who did bring, um socialism with them, of one, you know, socialism of one stripe or another. Uh, but for the immigrants who came in the period between 18, let's say 1870 and 1890, they did not, for the most part. They had no, um the vast majority of immigrants had no political aff- affiliation or experience or exposure to socialist ideas w- whatsoever um and that's because there was no movement uh, a socialist movement among Jews that emerged uh, and emerged yet in Russia that wouldn't happen until after 1900 really uh, th- there were there were groupings that appeared in the 1890s but it wouldn't become a mass movement there mm-hmm. so much later so people what what had happened is that people um future observers would confuse a later development with an earlier development mm-hmm. uh they confuse the later immigrants uh, who did bring over one another form of socialism as the experience of all all immigrant Jews. So those mm-hmm. who were coming in the in the late 19th century didn't bring that with them.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: they discovered, for many of them, they discovered it in the United States.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The people who, um, the, the founders of the Jewish, what was called the Jewish labor movement um, in New York, the founders of that movement, most of whom were actually intellectuals. And those intellectuals, which is really to say students, um those intellectuals did have sympathy with the revolutionary movement in Russia. They had some exposure to it, um, although their ideas about revolution and what socialism meant were very vague and unformed at the time. But that was the element that had some exposure, but the numbers were relatively small, and they came to the United States and would eventually become founders of the Jewish workers' movement, even though very few of them were actually workers for mm-hmm. any length of time. There, what, what uh, and, and so what I discuss in my book is the interactions between those early Jewish immigrants, especially the intellectuals, and the German radicals, the socialists, and the anarchists on the Lower East Side. Um, in that encounter that took place in the 1880s, and, and as I try to argue, that encounter between e- Russian Jew and, and Ger- Russian Jewish uh, radical or would-be radical and uh, German socialists and anarchists produced, um, uh, produce, would, would lead directly to the creation of the Jewish workers' movement. Mm-hmm. The intellectuals, as like I said, already had a kind of political consciousness, but they didn't know a whole lot about Marxism or social democracy or anarchism and they learned that they picked up those new ideas ideologies from from the Germans in New York they also borrowed a lot of, from Germans in other ways G- Germans especially German socialists set up models of organization that were completely alien to the Russian Jews such as such as trade unions mm-hmm. um uh so the uh, uh, forming unions participating in election campaigns those sorts of things were new they were alien. And at first, for many of these Russian Jews, they were very, um, they seemed very mundane. Because the idea of revolution is throwing a bomb, basically, yeah. and assassinating the Tsar. Yeah. So, you know, the, the idea of standing on a street corner, handing out leaflets or something, uh, like that just seemed just too mundane and too, and unworthy of, of the idea of revolution. So what Germans did is basically teach them, uh, a new conception that said, you know, no, you can be a revolutionary. But you also have to engage in practical work to change society, and that can be done in a democratic society like America. You can organize unions, take part in election campaigns, propagate socialist ideas, uh, and the proper socialist ideas, of course, were either Marxism or or some form of anarchism. And and once Jewish radicals accepted that idea, um, they started following the German model in creating mm-hmm. the foundation for the Jewish labor movement in which they started to propagate socialism in Yiddish
0: Mm
2: -hmm. to the immigrant masses who had never before encountered Yiddish, I mean, sorry, uh, encountered encountered socialism in any language. Mm -hmm. So there's a process of, a three-way process of transmission that went from Germans in America to a small number of Russian Jewish radicals who were just discovering new forms of socialism from the Germans in, in New York, and then those Jewish radicals transmitting socialism in Yiddish to... The, immigrant masses.
1: Um, the German Social Democratic Party was obviously the most important in Europe at the time, so it's not particularly surprising that um, these Russian Jewish intellectuals, when they showed up in New York, would have a kind of German orientation. But what did they mm-hmm. think about the uh, Yiddish-speaking Jews uh, mm-hmm. in the New York community at the time? Because there's a kind of class element here as well, isn't there?
2: Yes. Yeah, there was... Um a part of the Russian. Uh, I'm sorry. Are you talking about the Russian Jews? Yeah, the Russian Jews. Uh, Jews yeah, yeah.
1: The, the members of the intelligentsia. Yeah. Yeah.
2: They had. They had. A, they had a, I think a mix of views. It's hard to know exactly what they felt um, because they didn't leave detailed um, explanations at the time. But according to most of their recollections that were published much later, they felt. Um, they felt a mix of feelings. One. One strongly felt impulse was that, well, the mass of. Yiddish-speaking immigrant Jews were—they they were benighted, they were ignorant, um, they weren't—they weren't enlightened
0: yet—and
2: mm-hmm. um, they needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was some sense that they were um, uncultured and uneducated and ignorant at this point. Mm-hmm. But there was also a strong feeling that Jewish immigrants. The Jews had strong inclinations toward education mm-hmm. and towards radicalism, so that so even though most of the workers were not enlightened yet, they 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 would be soon, and they could be fairly easily.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that um, so if that you know with enough hard work, mm-hmm. um, great success would come. So it's a mix of positive and and less than flattering sentiments towards towards most immigrant Jews. I'd, I'd say that's the uh, that 's the best mm-hmm. way to describe it, mm-hmm. and that was expressed in in an ambivalent attitude in the late nineteenth century toward the Yiddish language itself mm-hmm. uh, which most educated people in Europe viewed as um not really a true language at all but a corrupted dialect of german mm-hmm. and um and that was certainly true of, of the intellectuals who viewed Russian as the language of their intellectual selves.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And Yiddish was, again, they they refer to it as jargon,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, which which can be translated as jargon or maybe a little more uh, neutrally as, uh, as the Jewish vernacular.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's how they referred to it, uh, meaning that they didn't see it as a language on par with the major European languages. And yet these very same people embraced Yiddish um, starting in the 1880s for the very purpose of preaching socialism and and trying to educate uh, educate the the workers
0: mm-hmm.
2: and in along the way developed more or less positive feelings about yiddish mm-hmm. um sometimes those feelings you could describe perhaps as conde- as let's say um uh i don't know something like um sympathetic condescension or something <laughs> like that um which is to say that they, there, there was an attitude that yes, Yiddish is not really on par with French, Russian, German, or English, mm-hmm. but Yiddish is not such a bad language in its own right and can be put to good uses. And, and who knew? You know, it's kind of the surprise. Condes- this is a kind of condescending sympathy. Mm-hmm. Um, then there were those who always viewed it as nothing more than a kind of, as someone, one writer put it, a mishmash sprach. Uh, again a kind of not really a true pure language but uh something some kind of corrupted hybrid and then there were those who later came on the scene and came to view yiddish as not only a useful tool but uh an end in its own right mm-hmm. uh which is to say um the this, the, the the backbone of A new kind of Yiddish, a new kind of culture, a new kind of secular culture in the Yiddish language that ideally would be the cultural instrument of the Jews for you know in perpetuity. Yeah. So so initially there was this kind of mix of feelings about Jews and about the language they spoke uh, that eventually gave way to more positive sentiments.
1: Mm -hmm. Was there Mm -hmm. at the time uh, any sort of Yiddish literature say prior to Mm -hmm. 1890?
2: Yes, there there was Yiddish but it was young. Yiddish literature was still very new. Uh Yiddish fiction started emerging in Russia in the eighteen sixties mm-hmm. slowly. Uh there wasn't a whole lot in the way of Yiddish poetry. Yiddish theater had been suppressed in Russia or in Eastern Europe, so mm-hmm. there wasn't a whole lot of that. Um There were no Yiddish newspapers to speak of
0: Mm -hmm. in
2: Russia at the end of the 19th century because they were illegal. Mm -hmm. So there was not a strong literary tradition. It was just emerging at the time of the mass immigration. So a lot of the early Yiddish writers in America... Including those associated with the socialist movement, were really inventing their own tradition as they went. Mm -hmm. That was very different. That's a a big contrast with the Germans, because of course they could draw from a huge body of literature, not just not just in terms of fiction and poetry, but scholarship, um, newspapers, uh, political theory, any the whole array the whole array of of of, of knowledge produced in the German language was available Mm -hmm. to them. And in the the in the case of the Jews, they had to invent things from scratch. They had to they had to improvise. They had to create they couldn't import newspapers. They had to create them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um so 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 much of what was produced in New York at this time was was in, was new, was was indigenous to New York, if, if, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, or at least as a product of New York. Maybe that's the better way to put it. It's the product of New York, and and uh, and so you start seeing things such as in the 1880s the emergence of a new kind of poetry, protest poetry in Yiddish, mm-hmm. uh, by groups of individuals who were associated with the workers' movement, mm-hmm. and um, they would eventually come to be known as the sweatshop poets.
0: Mm-hmm
2: and they uh in, in that you know the kind of poetry they were writing just hadn't been seen before mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: yeah no i find this very interesting in the sense that again you have another one of these reversals i mean again mm-hmm. we tended to think of uh the jews having uh carried socialism with them mm-hmm. and that turns out not to be true that they, mm-hmm. they adopted it molded it, and assimilated it from uh, this pre-existing german community and mm-hmm. then on the other hand uh I actually, I had interviewed Sam Kassov about his book um,
2: oh, that's concerning book.
1: Emanuel Ringelblum. Yeah, yeah, you should, yeah, that's an interview on the site if anybody wants to uh, listen to it. It truly is an amazing book. Uh, but, you know, and again, I, I was sort of under the misapprehension that this, um, this, this, this idea that uh, the Jewish community could subsist in Yiddish and then there could be a Yiddish culture was a kind of thing invented in Poland. And one of the things you yeah. point out in the book is that it actually was invented in New York and it was carried across to some extent.
2: Well, well, there are two things. I, I put it slightly, slightly differently. I think two things were happening, uh, that were distinct but would feed into one another. You had the beginnings of what would come to be known as modern Yiddish culture, secular Yiddish culture, uh, in, in New York and Chicago and, and other urban centers. Some of those things were were specific to. They were created first, and in, in, in certainly in a significant way, in, in New York. That's mm-hmm. the Yiddish theater, that's the Yiddish press, that's certain kinds of Yiddish literature, such as poetry. Um, not all Yiddish culture arose from from New York. I don't mean to say that. Yeah, sure. As I said, the Yiddish novel was already in development um, in Russia. So, but but a lot of Yiddish cultural production was, was happening in New York first. Mm-hmm. So that Yiddish really was the first, in my opinion, the, the major Yiddish cultural center prior to World War I. Mm-hmm. The, now, that's, so that's one phenomenon. The other is the emergence of ideologies, um, that upheld, ideolo- an ideology of what you could call Yiddish cultural nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, that not only, um, that, that
0: looked
2: at the, uh, that, that looked at the flowering of Yiddish culture taking place, and then said, well, this is the beginning of a tremendous cultural renaissance taking place in the Yiddish language, and that this should be the main, um that, that what Jewish socialists need to do is uh perpetuate and develop this culture to the greatest extent possible mm-hmm. in the name of the Jewish nation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, now, that idea, that idea of, of Yiddish cultural nationalism that I just, very briefly sketched, that does originate in Europe, not in the United States, I
0: see. Uh-huh. and then
2: is brought to the United States. Mm-hmm. So what you see then is a reciprocal relationship in which certain things are created in the U.S. and indeed sometimes shipped back to Eastern Europe. Uh, so, for instance, socialist Yiddish periodicals were smuggled in, uh, published in New York, were smuggled into Eastern Europe by the thousands
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and used by revolutionaries there. That's an example of the way in which. There was a, an exporting of Yiddish print culture connected to socialism that happened. Where there was an, a, an influence on, uh, uh, from New York to to Russia, and then in other instances there was a, there was an eastward flow of influence, mm-hmm. and that was certainly the case with ideologies about Yiddish cultural nationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main figure was someone named Chaim Zhitlovsky,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: who I write about. He was a he was a, an important figure in the Russian revolutionary movement. He was a founder of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, but he's also a, the first one of the first Jewish intellectuals to create a synthesis of revolutionary socialism and Jewish nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he comes to the US in 1904.
1: And uh, this this precedes, as you point out in the book, uh, the well maybe it doesn't proceed, but it. Well, maybe it does precede the Austro-Marxists who are thinking along the same lines. Is that right? right. Yeah. Yes.
2: Well, they're t- taking place about the same time. Um, I think his ideas are being generated a little bit before some of them. It's not entirely clear to me what the exact chronology is, but it does seem clear to me that Jitlovsky is working up his ideas independently of the Austro-Marxists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: So, how did they go about actually constructing a Jewish literary language or a Jewish socialist mm. language? They found many, many periodicals. You point them out. Some of them are still around today, like Forverts is, yes. is still around, believe it or not. Um, I was uh, talking to some other. Uh, I was talking to another person I interviewed, and he mentioned that Forverts was, was still around. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about um, about uh, the Jewish periodical press as it was invented or sponsored uh, by these socialists.
2: Well, you mentioned the problem of language, the issue of language in creating a literary Yiddish. That, that was a big problem. Uh, and it was a problem for two reasons. Um, one was that a lot of the intellectuals didn't know Yiddish well uh, <laughs> when they started writing, or when they made the decision to start using it. That's either because they had uh, it was either because they were born into Russian-speaking families or given Russian educations at a very young age, mm-hmm. and so just didn't know the language too well. Then there were those who knew Yiddish perfectly well but had left it behind as much as possible as they were becoming adults
0: mm-hmm. and
2: as they were becoming educated. So, so, that there was, um, so that was one practical problem, was just not knowing the language that well. The other is, even for those who knew the language, there was a problem of how to adapt or how to figure out how to use Yiddish to convey ideas. That hadn't previously been conveyed in Yiddish
0: mm-hmm, before. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so that was another problem. Another problem was, that of course, they were living in the United States where there was a whole array of new ideas, concepts, phenomena, and so forth that um, didn't seem to have a vocabulary in Yiddish, at least not immediately to express. So those were, uh, and, because, and so, and, and I think finally, is there was the, uh, a, a lack of or dearth of established literary or journalistic models mm-hmm. uh, from which to draw so these these were the factors contributing to a problem of how to write mm-hmm. in Yiddish, what might be considered authentic or proper yiddish mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm sorry, I left out the most obvious problem, which is that there' are different dialects of yiddish,
0: yep.
2: Um so that was yet another one so what uh, the early the early socialists did was draw heavily on German mm-hmm. um, because there was the vocabulary was there
0: mm-hmm.
2: and german the german language is so intimately associated with socialism anyway
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh that it just seemed appropriate to do that mm-hmm. um and of course there were those individuals like i said who didn't know yiddish that well but they might know german quite well mm-hmm. so uh that was easier for them to do mm-hmm. so in the beginning period of the late 19th century you get a heavy germanized yiddish um in the yiddish press that a lot of immigrants couldn't really understand too well mm-hmm. Uh, they had very, they had a lot of difficulties reading it and understanding it, and uh, and that came to be known in Yiddish as Deutschmarish, mm-hmm. just means ger- g- Germanish, mm-hmm. uh, an overly Germanized Yiddish. And eventually, however, and I mean, in after the turn of the century, you start to see a. A more natural yiddish uh coming to be used and and again, there's various factors there. One is that people are just learning how to write Yiddish better. You also have newcomers from Russia who are rejecting Deutschmarisch and a, and mm-hmm. a few other th- uh, factors, so that um a better Yiddish s- starts gradually to come in to existence um, and people uh, people just start developing the tools the mm-hmm. more they do it the the although there's another influence that starts to appear that's not German and that's English. There's an English influence mm-hmm. on on the Yiddish language too that comes in, and that would become a subject of great controversy: the extent to which. A newspaper like the Forbes should use English mm-hmm. uh, was was a matter of was a matter of debate.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, now some write now how did people actually learn it or learn learn yeah, the I was, learn I was, I was, it well?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, again, that was exactly my follow up because you know on the one hand what we have here is the Hebrew character set and phonemes or what, mm-hmm. not exactly, but the character set at least. So presumably they would learn that in Hebrew school if they went to Hebrew school. But then uh-huh. were there actual literacy schools for Yiddish which would teach them? I you know
2: uh it's, it's interesting uh okay, so um, it depends on who you're talking about and when they came mm-hmm. to the United States and where they came from in eastern europe but um uh certainly for the intellectuals in that generation to the late nineteenth century, by and large, there wasn't formal yiddish instruction um especially too for women uh literacy was was greater not surprisingly for men mm-hmm. uh for for those who didn't know the language at all uh, or knew it very little um they had, they were often tutored by those intellectuals who knew Yiddish. Mm-hmm. So the key figure in this regard, or one of them is a man named Abraham Kahn, probably the foremost individual in the immigrant Jewish scene, who's the editor of Forverts for most of its existence. Mm-hmm. And he used to take his writers, such as Morse Hilquitt, the great Socialist Party leader of that time. Uh, Hilquitt's family name is Hilkovitz, mm-hmm. and he was very involved in the early Yiddish press. And um, so what, what Khan would do is go over their Yiddish with them and say, look, this is not proper Yiddish, this is German, no one's going to understand this, your your syntax is too wooden, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he would sit them down and try to teach them more authentic Yiddish. Some people published uh, primers or series, art, a series of articles explaining mm-hmm. what is good Yiddish and what's bad Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were meant mainly for writers, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, the intellectuals. For the ordinary individual, uh, that was a different story. So their their problem is not that they couldn't speak it; they could speak it perfectly fluently. It's that they'd never studied it uh, before in religious schools. Religious schools are there to teach. Uh, the, um, uh, boys up to the age of 13, the basics of Judaism based mm-hmm. on the Bible and, and so forth. Yep. So, so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't instruction of grammar,
0: uh, yep. English grammar.
2: So what they, they, they basically learned by doing, uh, by learning the newspaper, by reading, forcing themselves to read the newspaper, mm-hmm. um, by just practicing, by turning to friends and family for help in that regard. Mm-hmm. There were, um, Later on the scene, uh, I'm not sure exactly when, certainly by the second decade of the 20th century, socialists started offering language classes in Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that did start happening. But already, you know, they're several decades into the story by, by the time those classes, um, get started. There's a proliferation of self-education societies starting in the 1890s where workers were creating their own education societies Mm -hmm. where people would get together and read, sometimes write, teach themselves how to give a speech or a lecture. So there was an intense Atmosphere of self-education that, that I imagine extended not only from not that, that that was concerned not only with reading but also with public speaking and I'd imagine with writing itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I, I find mm-hmm. it very uh, I find it very interesting. This goes back to the influence of the SPD and mm-hmm. its culture because they attempted in Germany to create a kind of uh, socialist culture, mm-hmm. and then it seems as if that the uh, these um, Russian intellectuals in creating a kind of uh, Yiddish socialist culture. Mm. Modeled yeah. uh, what they were doing off what was being done in Germany, and I'm particularly I speaking about things like these uh, these worker circles and the study mm. circles, the speeches, and also and this is the the, the part that uh, uh, that I find most mind blowing is socialist summer camp, which I know right. the Germans <laughs> sort of invented and lasted <laughs> a very long time into the yeah. into the mid 20th century. I, I've met people who went to socialist summer camps, so it was an attempt yeah. to create a kind of proletarian culture. Yeah. Uh, I, I, in the Yiddish language, among these these uh, among these Yiddish-speaking Jews, and, and that, in that in that sense, it's a it's a it's a, um it's a very interesting example of kind of international influence. They're mm-hmm. taking their cues from the Germans and then modeling it and adapting it to the American context. And it shows a, a, a really quite considerable degree of um, persistence in the American context, which is mm-hmm. which is I, I, again I find absolutely fascinating. I wanted to ask you about the relationship between. Um, those who wanted to attempt to to create a a socialist Yiddish-speaking culture and two other ideological currents which must Mm -hmm. have affected uh, Jews in New York at this time. And one was uh, compulsory education or education in general and movements toward American cultural assimilation. Mm -hmm. And then the other was... Mm -hmm. uh, those people in the Jewish community who were more religious,
0: Mm -hmm. who were
1: worried precisely about this kind of assimilation. Maybe Mm -hmm. you could give us a feel for how the uh, Yiddish socialists dealt with these two forces.
2: Uh, Cultural cultural assimilation and religion? Yeah, religion, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Well, at first, uh, religion, and when I say at first, again, I'm referring to the 1880s, 1890s, Mm -hmm. um, religion was thought to be a problem. Um, an obstacle to the success of socialism, um, and, and this was especially true among anarchists, who were really hostile to all forms of religion, including Judaism. Mm-hmm. So they campaigned pretty vigorously against it. The most famous or infamous example is uh, what were called the what, what was called the uh, Yom Kippur ball. Where anarchists, Jewish anarchists, would hold balls on Yom Kippur, the mm-hmm. most holy day in the Jewish calendar,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, eat food, celebrate, dance, drink, smoke, whatever, and it was meant as a very provocative anti-religious statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, socialists had a more tolerant attitude. Again, taking taking their cue from German socialists, who in 18, 1870s had determined that religion should be a private matter, mm-hmm. uh, just. You know, not really the concern of the party. If a religion, if a person wanted to be religious, fine. If not, fine. So, 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 so the social, socialists were more tolerant in that regard. They, they didn't especially like it, but they were, they were tolerant. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, some socialists, such as Abraham Khan, even used religion, or let's say the idioms of religion, to convey the socialist message. Mm-hmm. Um, Ultimately, the anarchists stopped their their kind of a pr- pr- more provocative and combative stance. And one reason for that is because religion just really wasn't a threat, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not in, in New York. Um, there were Orthodox Jews to be sure, but um, the Orthodox Jews seemed increasingly irrelevant from mm-hmm. the perspective of the socialists. Um, their numbers were small. The, the the trend, the overall trend among immigrant Jews was towards secularism. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that everyone became atheists, or that everybody discarded all aspects of of religion. That didn't happen. In fact, a good number of immigrants uh, maintained a mix of attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that combined uh, friendliness and attachment to religion, but also an adherence to socialist ideas. Sometimes those people are called half socialists
0: mm-hmm.
2: or half Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that, but nonetheless, you know, many people had maintained this kind of mix of feelings and attitudes. Yeah. So you'd have two poles: so the diehard orthodox on the one side, the diehard socialists on the other. Theoretically, they they can't be reconciled, but in practice, people drew elements from both, and I think socialists eventually got to the point, I don't know when you could date it, but eventually came to recognize and understand that they were the trendsetters, they were the pace setters, not, not the orthodoxies, and that was really a, a tremendous reversal of status and of values in the, in the Jewish community. So orthodoxy, or, or Judaism, went from being an all-encompassing way of, way of life, in Eastern European Jewish life to being a kind of small subculture mm-hmm. among New York Jewry, while people who were previously marginal, you know, the, the radicals, uh, and the secularists came to be uh, leaders of, of a great segment of, of the world's largest Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the dyna- there, there were certainly Orthodox Jews, but the dynamics of power were not working in their favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a host of reasons. Um, host of reasons. And then you've got the pulls of Americanization. Now that's yeah. a difference. Now, now that's much more powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you can imagine. Uh, there's
0: the,
2: the public school, there's, um, uh, just the entire society, the larger society. Mm-hmm. Uh, with its various attractions in terms of things like popular entertainment, sports, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and pressures. There were, of course, pressures to assimilate as well. So that was very much a concern among um, among among people who were afraid that their children were going to um, become absorbed into the capitalist ethos. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of socialists, that was a concern, that their children would be lost. And the children would lose their connection to the Jewish working class and lose their sympathies to the socialist cause. And then there were those who also felt, particularly those who wanted to create a Yiddish culture, who, who, who wanted, uh, who loved Yiddish, and wanted it to survive in America. Those people also looked askance at the public schools because of the, obviously they were they were an anglicizing force. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this mix of feelings this is expressed very strongly um, these these concerns were expressed very strongly in discussions of the public school and mm-hmm. the American public school and you had socialists and you had these Yiddishists who had both cause and of course many Yiddishists were socialists, so they had two causes to be concerned about the uh, detrimental influence that public schools might have on their kids and at the same time, however, they were also impressed with American public schools mm-hmm. they weren't uniformly hostile by any means. Be, uh, they, they were very impressed by the idea of universal public education. They considered that extremely progressive coming from uh, a country like Russia in which education was a privilege, not a right. Mm, right. Um, so so there was this mix. So you, so you, get this ambi- you get this ambivalence again towards the larger society that, that it has these great um, opportunities and at the same time might um, corrupt um, values. Mm -hmm. Um, political and cultural values and uh, of course over the long term um, I suppose you could say the forces of Americanization won won out at at least in the sense that Yiddish ceased to be the spoken Mm -hmm. vernacular the everyday language of, of Jews in America so the Yiddish cultural nationalists clearly lost that one over time. Socialism had greater longevity, I'd argue. The uh, successive generations of Jews, anyway, continued to gravitate or uh, or maintain uh, commitments to socialism in one kind or another. And you see that really up until the 1960s. They didn't always do so as Jews, necessarily, Mm -hmm. but but there was an attraction to the radical left among Jews for quite a long time.
1: Yeah, I want to talk to you about that in a second, but uh, let's just take one step back and uh, uh, introduce a third group, uh, Uh and that would be... Um, uh, Hebraists or Zionists? Oh, right. How did uh, how did these Yiddish uh, speaking socialists in New York relate to um, mm-hmm. Zionism and the notion of Hebrew as the Jewish national language? Uh,
2: now things are really getting complicated. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Hebra- Hebraists, well, separate Hebraism from Zionism to okay. some extent. Um, the there was generally a lack of interest, let's say, in Hebrew among the, the socialists. Um, were, I'd say indifference to maybe some hostility, but I'd say more indifference. And that's because so few Jews could read Hebrew in
0: America mm-hmm.
2: uh, that the Hebr- Hebraist movement here was very, very weak.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, there were Hebrew writers, most of whom were Zionists, but they didn't have much of an audience. Mm-hmm. Um And so Hebrew was never really a threat here to Yiddish. Mm -hmm. It was not a competitor. Mm -hmm. So it it just didn't warrant um, a whole lot of a whole lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Zionism is different. Zionism, of course, did um, Zionism had a lot of followers and therefore was presented a challenge to at least the mainstream socialists. not in the beginning, though. Zionism didn't really be, start to become a force until the first two decades of the 20th century. Zionism emerged as a force precisely in response to Europe, uh, various crises in Europe, mm-hmm. ma- mainly pogroms, anti-Jewish riots. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a series of those. And, and with each round of, of violence against Jews, the sympathy for Zionism tended to increase. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Zionism was growing in Eastern Europe, often for the very same reason, and there was an influx of thousands and thousands of Zionists. Now, many of those Zionists were leftists. Mm -hmm. They were socialists of one kind or another. Some were Marxists um, and Zionists. So you start to get these hybrid ideologies uh, proliferating in the first two decades of the 20th century. They combined various forms of Zionism with various forms of socialism. There were even anarchist Zionists. Uh, during this period, and so you've got this. So, so now Zionism starts to become uh, a competitor to the established, more orthodox forms of socialism that, that grew out of the late 19th century. You have more adherents, more mm-hmm. people are, are getting getting uh, sim- are getting involved and growing sympathetic uh, to to left wing forms of Zionism, mm-hmm. so that you get a lot of political competition and conflict. Um, as time goes on, you get more and more kinds and varieties of socialists, and Zionists are among them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I know that's interesting. Let's mm-hmm. uh, let's stir the pot a little bit more, okay. and let me mm-hmm. ask you about yet another group. Um, that is the, the Bund, the, mm. uh, the Jewish labor movement in uh, Eastern Europe, which yeah. uh, those of us who uh, um, went to graduate school, I guess, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, we learned that the Bund was the largest um, um, Jewish mm-hmm. socialist group in the world. Mm-hmm. I guess that might not be true now that I've read your book. But in any event, uh, mm-hmm. w- what were the relationships between um, the Bund on the one hand and uh, the um, New York-based Jewish oh. socialists?
2: The great. It's a great question. The Bundes, uh had a had a tremendous influence um, on the pre-existing uh, American Jewish labor movement. Um, the Bundes Started arriving in large numbers after 1900, but especially after 1905, mm-hmm. uh, when the revolution in Russia collapsed and there was a wave of political repression as well as pogroms, and large numbers. It's not known how many came to the U.S., but but it, it's clear that we're talking about thousands mm-hmm. of members of this party came to the U.S. And so they brought an ideology uh, with them. The ideology was a combination of Marxism, and Cultural or some people call it diaspora nationalism which which held this that uh, it said that jews are um, jews, in, jews in Russia anyway form a nation but they're, they're a nation defined not by territory or by state power but by their culture
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the culture is a yiddish culture mm-hmm. so that yiddish so that yiddish culture and the Yiddish language made up Jewish nationality mm-hmm. substantially. Um, and that uh, the Jewish working class are the standard bearers of, of Yiddish culture and mm-hmm. should be in the future. And so what they wanted is, on the one hand, to organize Jews separately into a separate Jewish Marxist movement, and that was the Bund, uh, and put forward a demand of Yiddish cultural, uh, what they call national cultural autonomy. And at the same time, they wanted Jewish workers to be allied with non-Jewish Socialists mm-hmm. and non Jewish workers. So mm-hmm. they struck a very delicate balance between nationalism and internationalism, to use the terms of the time. Mm-hmm. So these thousands of them brought these ideas to the United States. And on the one hand, in the United States, they really infused the local movement with tremendous energy. Um, personnel. I was talking about lots of now battle-hardened and trained activists and revolutionaries are now in the United States and mm-hmm. they're bringing skills and determination and energy with them and uh, would have a noticeable effect on the unions and the increasing uh, strength of the unions, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. the Sidney Bundes- uh, Hillman, the head of the amalgamated Clothing workers, was, came from the Bund. David Dubinsky, the future head of the um, International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union was a Bundist,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, so those are two examples of their influence. However, a lot of the, lo- the, the, the pre-existing leadership in the Jewish labor movement, again, people like Abraham Kahn who came in the 1880s, had, they, they were suspicious of the Bundists. On the one hand, they they were in agreement, they both considered themselves Marxists, the Bundists were Marxists and so on, but there were a couple of things they didn't quite like about the Bundists. One is that they brought a real revolutionary fervency to the United States. Mm-hmm. that the older socialists didn't quite think was appropriate.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The other controversial issue was that um, they were uh, they were staunch adherents of Yiddish, whereas a lot of the older generation wanted Jews to learn English and wanted to culturally assimilate. It. True they used Yiddish uh, to organize and educate the workers, but the older generation viewed Yiddish as a temporary instrument. Uh, they wanted working class to shift as soon as possible to English so they could be part of the larger American working class and not ex- exist as a separate, you know, subculture within, within it. But here you have the Bundists arguing for Yiddish and arguing for the permanent future of Yiddish and, and wanting to develop Yiddish culture and paying a lot of attention also to Jewish communal issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was this, so you could say the Bundists were both, in a sense, more Jewish. And more radical politically mm-hmm. than the established leadership, and that was uh, that was um, a kind of recipe for conflict that would play itself out in America for for many years to come. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Before we talk about that, uh, which we'll come mm-hmm. right back to, I want to ask a, a, a what is kind of a digressive question. Well, is it the case that um, were the scriptures translated into Yiddish?
2: Oh, good question. I,
1: you know, I just. I don't know. Were they?
2: Yes, there. There was, in fact, the the Bible was translated into Yiddish, um, and the the first modern Yiddish, well, certainly the modern, first modern Yiddish translation of the Bible was done by a poet. Um, who went by the pen name Yehoash, mm-hmm. and he had some affiliation with the left um, I'm not, he wasn 't a party activist, but you know he 's sort of identified with the stuff we 're talking about and he so he did over a uh, number of years published uh, his translation one edition uh, which I actually own really? is wow. it 's in Hebrew and Yiddish. you have the original Hebrew and next to it you have his uh-huh. Yiddish translation yeah. other uh, editions are just just the yiddish um so that does yes that that uh, there's a translation of the what bible the does what,
1: what does the rebbe say about translating um the bible into yiddish or into english for that matter i don't even, i don't know is that is it uh is that an appropriate thing to do or uh,
2: that's a good would, question Would it strike people I,
1: I, as kind of uh sacrilegious or
2: i i'd imagine it probably did i i don't know i don't have any concrete information about how orthodox Jews reacted to this yeah. Um, it tradi- traditionally, the way it worked in Jewish society was that uh, Yiddish translations, or let's say, um, let's say, kind of popularizations of the Bible or other religious texts, were done for women officially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or it, the, the language <laughs> was something like women are, or women and men who are like women, meaning yeah. <laughs> men who don't know men who don't know Hebrew. Yeah. So that so that Yiddish was recognized as an important tool. Um, but always was secondary in importance and in mm-hmm. status to the Holy Tongue.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: When Yehovah published his Yiddish translation of the Bible, I don't know, I, I can imagine two, I could imagine two separate reactions on the part of Orthodox Jews. One is this is a good thing because yeah. it makes scripture available.
0: Yeah.
2: Or this is a bad thing because, because um because it's somehow sacrilege. I, I actually don't know the answer to yeah, that just speculation.
0: Just, just,
1: I've I, never heard of a, a Yiddish translation of the Bible, and I sort of suspect that if there were to be one, it would come out of this circle. Um, exactly. And, and in fact, I was right. So let's move back mm-hmm. then to the American context. How did uh, the um, Jewish labor movement, the Yiddish-speaking Jewish labor movement, fit into the broader American uh, um, progressive labor movement of the early, 19, early 20th century?
2: Well, at first, um, in the late 19th, early 20th century, it didn't fit in all that easily, Um for a couple reasons. One, because, um uh, w- one is because the, the unions that Jewish workers created were, were just perennially unstable. Uh, they kept on forming unions. Jewish workers kept on going on strike. They often win, one would win the strikes and then create unions, but then the unions would, would falter and collapse within a year or a number of months or whatever. So much of it was kind of, it was a stereotype actually at the time, the Jews that, 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 uh, uh, or the conventional wisdom was that Jews were good strikers but bad trade unionists mm-hmm. um, so that was one pr- that was one problem uh, d- by the way the German unions actually did lend a helping hand to uh, the early efforts at unionization among Jews
0: mm-hmm.
2: then starting around 1909 um, not around 1909 really in 1909 with the, with the famous strike of shirtwaist makers called the uprising of the 20,000 that launched a series of Huge strikes, um, over the next five years or so that produced the major garment unions, uh, which I referred to before. Mm-hmm. Now, Jewish labor was a real organized force.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and in the case of, say, the ILGWU was one of the largest unions in the AFL at the time. So, so that starting in this period, the second decade of the 20th century, and probably even more so in the, the 1920s, Jewish labor. Was one of the important um, segments of the larger working class, the larger organized labor movement, no doubt about it. And yet, at the same time, because all the G- Jewish, so called Jewish unions, which is to say unions that had a Jewish leadership and was mm-hmm. predominantly Jewish membership, all of them really were socialists, socialist mm-hmm. unions, led mm-hmm. by socialists, identified with the Socialist Party, and that was often a source of tension. Especially during the 1910s, 1920s, was a source of tension, often with the AFL leadership, mm-hmm. uh, Jews were just seen as, as, as troublemakers, as rabble rousers, as leftists. So the the standard view in the AFL was something called bread, bread and butter unionism, which is to say, unions were there to increase the wages of their members, to to, to fight for shorter working hours, to have say over the hiring process, things like that. They were to protect the basic interests of in class. That, that was called bread and butter unionism, and then you, the the the, social, the Jewish socialists had a different idea of unionism. For the for them, unions were supposed to do that, but they were also instruments of social change and social transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two views often came into conflict with one another. Mm-hmm. And, and Jews was Germans were the standard bearers of socialism in the late 19th century. By the early mid-20th century, Jews came to be seen as as kind of the backbone of the socialist movement, and within the labor movement, they became not the only socialists, uh, but among the sort of paragons of socialism within the AFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some ways, because of that, sir, they served to lay the groundwork for the CIO in the 1930s, mm-hmm. um, the kind of unions... Jews had created in the teens would would resemble somewhat the, the great industrial unions of the 1930s, like the United Auto Workers.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I see them as kind of an important, well, I see them as an important link mm-hmm. between the German socialist unions of the late 19th century and the huge unions of the CIO starting in the 1930s. Mm-hmm.
1: I see. Let's move uh, forward just a little bit, um, mm-hmm. actually more than just a little bit. We know in hindsight, of course, that uh, both the attempt to create a... Uh, Yiddish Jewish culture in the United States um, failed ultimately if that's not too strong a world um, and or it passed out of existence let's put it that way Uh, and then also socialism passed out of existence um, or at least out of uh, favor among this group of um, uh, largely East Coast based um, Jews why did those things happen
2: Mm. I think those two things happened for um, a combination of reasons one one cause was uh, political repression.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh that's just one and 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 the two major moments of repression was the post World War 1 red scare mm-hmm. and uh McCarthyism after World War 2.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, another factor was the um was the openness of the Democratic Party uh to um reformist elements. Mm-hmm. In particular, during the New, in particular, New Deal Democrats, mm-hmm. who started, you know, adopting elements of the Socialist Party platform, mm-hmm. so that by 1936, a good number of socialists could um, plausibly think that the Democratic Party was moving in their direction, that they, the Democratic Party, was becoming um, a Socialist Party of sorts. Um, so you can call this then co-optation into the Democratic Party as the Democratic Party became more liberal during the New Deal era. Mm -hmm. That was another reason for this, uh, as I say co-optation. Another was um, the passing of generations. Mm -hmm. Um, There was, uh, as as, as American-born Jews started to make it or um, try to make it economically in America, socialism was uh had lost its attraction and its hold.
0: Mm-hmm. There was a
2: great exception to this and that's the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And then you see certainly an upsurge in radicalism among the second generation Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, but after World War Two of course there was a great um, there was a great increase um, there was a great increase in um, prosperity in the United States and that seemed to make socialism uh less appealing and less convincing during mm-hmm. that time period. So I'd say those are those are Mm -hmm. um, among the three main factors that affected both Jews and and non-Jews in the Mm socialist movement.
1: Yeah. One thing that I find um, uh, interesting and something I'd like to uh, hear your opinion about is um, the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I guess it's probably more than a hypothesis uh, that. Um the group that we call the new york intellectuals oh yeah um these these people, I don't know how many of them were Jewish, but yeah. I suspect a lot of them uh, yeah. uh, that that they are in fact the um the successors to these socialists. I mean, you know mm-hmm. the, these people uh, you know alfred Kazan and, and mm-hmm. sidney Hook and irving mm-hmm. howe and mm-hmm. and Richard Hostetter, and you know the names mm-hmm. just you know these are sure. the these are the brightest lights of um sort of Post-war, well, really, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, mm-hmm. uh, the American intellectual scene. Uh, what yeah. is the relationship between this r- relatively incoherent group of people, but it's you know mm-hmm. it's there, and um, these earlier Yiddish-speaking socialists?
2: I think there's a, a I think there's a, a fairly close relationship, in as much as many of those individuals um, who came to be identified with the New York intellectuals came from immigrant homes, yeah. in which. Um, in which Alfred, as Alfred Kaysen describes, is just part of a, the way of life um, in in the neighborhoods and where they grew up. So either their parent, many of them were either born into families that were socialists, that was certainly true of Alfred Kazan his, yeah. his dad was a socialist mm-hmm. and his sisters were radicals too. Yeah. Or like Irving Howe in the Bronx, um, he didn't grow up in a socialist family, his parents weren't socialists, but there was the socialists sort of defined the atmosphere of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So either at the dinner table or on the street, you kind of absorbed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just part of the atmosphere. It, it would was be part a, of the fabric. I,
1: not, not to suggest a, a, a project, but it, it seems to me that this, this, uh, this multi-generation passage of these socialist ideas and their transformation would be yes. very well treated in a kind of uh prosopography, if that's not a word that nobody understands anymore, that is a sort of intergenerational study mm-hmm. that began in the 1880s and then ended in the 1960s, because I suspect that you would find that this was passed from uh generation to generation mm-hmm. more or less directly.
2: I think that's, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and I think that would make a great project. I keep a file. I started keeping a file, uh, in case, in case I, 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 I have an, you know, yeah. if I have the opportunity to, to work on this more, I, I think, uh, I'd really like to do that. So I keep this file with, uh, you know, it consists of obituaries, yeah. you know, uh, memoirs, all sorts of things that, yeah. that draw out these connections.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I have a friend, Dan Paris is his name, and I, I'm pretty sure that his, uh, uh, he was a Russian historian, actually, and he, um, I'm sure that his great-grandfather or something uh, immigrated to the Lower East Side, and, and he had moved back to New York, and um, this was in the 1990s, I guess, and uh, and his, I, I think it, he tells a story about his grandfather. After he announced to his grandfather that he was moving back to the Lower East Side, his grandfather said, I spent my whole life trying to get out of that place,
0: <laughs> 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 and you're
1: moving back.
0: So, you
1: know, I really think that these people, there's a kind of, it's an interesting intergenerational kind of g- gravity that, that this place has on, on um, sort of intellectually oriented Jews and I said Dan Paris is certainly one of the uh, smartest people I know. But I, I just I always um you know when I was when I was growing up even in places like Kansas I remember for whatever reason we would get uh my mother was an English teacher and we would get the New Yorker.
0: Mm-hmm. And this just
1: seemed like the strangest thing to me, mm-hmm. just the weirdest thing that my mother got this magazine from New York, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I looked at the names, and you know, it this, you kind of see some of your Daniel Bells and Irving Crystals and these yeah. Norman Pajhorits and these other names mm-hmm. that I kind of grew up with, but you know, in Kansas of all places, and and so I, I've always had a kind of a, a, a um, kind of an envious fascination for this this circle, and you know, mm-hmm. I, your book is a terrific introduction to the kind of origin of that that moment in in, in American culture, and I, I just want to. Thank you for writing it.
2: Oh, thank you. And thank you for saying it.
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, we have taken up a huge amount of your time. I could talk forever about this topic, um, although probably incoherently given the head cold I have. I should um, say (laughs) I'm sorry to all our listeners, but I really can't even put a sentence together today. But um, let me thank you for being on the show. And let me ask you our traditional final question, Tony. And that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now?
2: Well, my current project is really just in its beginning stage is about, uh, in, in a sense it is, it is part two, um, in, in that I'm looking at the rise of a large communist, uh, the, a large communist movement among Jews, mm-hmm. um, starting in the 1920s. And the, what would emerge is a actually tremendous battle between, uh, socialists and communists for the soul of socialism mm-hmm. in the 20th century mm-hmm. uh, and it's a story that begins in the uh, neighborhoods of New York that we've been talking about but would eventually extend to the international scene during the Cold War mm-hmm. when uh, a number of these unions that I've also been talking about get involved in uh, American foreign Policy in some way or another, and fighting communism abroad.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so it's going to be about 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 that uh, the, commun- the, uh, the co- communism and anti-communism in the Jews.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I so much look forward to um to reading it to be honest with you because again I just I just find this multi-generational passage of these yeah. ideas these intellectuals just absolutely fascinating and, and uh, I'm very see. happy to hear that you're uh, continuing that work.
0: So thank anyway,
1: you. um Tony Michaels, thank you very much for being on the show. I should tell mm-hmm. our listeners that the book is a fire in their hearts yiddish socialists in new york Uh, it's just been released in paperback by harvard university press so rush out to your bookstore and make tony a rich man (laughs) (laughs) thank you so
2: much it's really been a pleasure
1: it's been my pleasure take care now okay bye -bye. bye bye you've been listening to an interview with tony michaels about his book a fire in their hearts yiddish socialists in new york i'm marshall poe and i have a pretty bad head cold which is why i sounded so funny today i hope you have a great week